are in a battle. I enjoy having as much fun as anybody in this room, I think. And no matter what it is, um, William was talking to me the other day, and and he was uh, talking about someday when the pool's fixed, he said, I'm going to get a football, and and you're going to throw the football, and I'm going to jump right in off the diving board, and I'm going to catch that football, and I'm going to hit the water. And then he said, and then I'm going to get out, and I'm going to take that football, and you're going to jump off the diving board, and I'm going to throw it to you, and you're going to catch it, and you're going into the water. He's got all these plans of fun things, and I love those sort of things. Uh, We enjoy life very much. We enjoy the pleasures and the freedoms uh, that we have as Americans. But as Christians, we're in war. We're at war. As we've been studying through the book, we've been seeing God's standard for us, um, and he does have standards for us. Uh, Husbands, love your wives. That's God's standard. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. That's God's standard. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Listen to what your parents are telling you and willfully submit yourself to their authority. That's God's standard for children. And then, of course, in chapter 6, we went on to learn and we we studied how God has a standard for employers and employees. Employees are to obey their employers. Oh, wow. Of course, that's only if your employer is perfect. Uh, We have an employer and an employee sitting next to each other right here on the third row. Uh, They're having a good time elbowing one another. Employers uh, uh, take care of your employees. Employees uh, uh, honor and obey your employers. And these are God's standards. And, of course, all of this comes uh, within the context of be filled with the Spirit. How can you, how can I, how can we as children of God, as Christians... Uh, measure up? How can we live up to God's standard? And that is only accomplished as you and I say yes to the Holy Spirit of God. And remember, the Holy Spirit of God always agrees with his word, the word of God. So God has made a provision for us, and the provision really that God has made for you and for me to live the life that he has saved us to live, which is a glorious, wonderful life. A life that is pleasing to God, the only way for us to do that and the provision God has made for us is himself. The word of God, living word, the written word, Christ living in us by his Holy Spirit. And so every day as we go through our day, if we choose to say yes to the spirit of God, we please the Lord, we live up to the standard he's given us, instructed us to live according as he's instructed us to live. But every time I say no to the Spirit of God, or you say no to the Spirit of God, a child of God slips and falls and uh, struggles in sinfulness, discouragement, anger, bitterness, malice, hatred, wrath, envy, covetousness. Okay? It's a pretty awful list, isn't it? It can get worse than that. It can get worse than that. So when you and I say no to the Spirit, we do not please God, we're not living by faith. When we say yes to the Spirit, we please God, we live by faith. Now, I want uh, us to focus on the passage that we're going to be looking at. I'm not going to read it just yet, but um, before we do in verse 10, before we begin, begin reading in verse number 10, I want you to keep in mind that you're in a battle. And I want you to ask yourself the question, where you're sitting this morning, uh, do you sense that you're in a battle? That's a really good question. Do you sense that you're in a battle? 
Or is everything in your life just kind of, I mean, bliss? Are you in a battle? Or are you on the playground? You remember those days in the playground? You probably had some battles in the playground, too, when you were little. I remember at, at church camp one time, there was this girl I liked. And I think I was nine years old. And so to show my affection for her, she, we would play tag, and she was pretty fast. And uh, she wore glasses, and I can remember she was chasing me down. And, and, uh, and so in a, in a show of affection for this girl, I picked up a small stone and turned and threw it right at her and hit her right between the eyes in the glasses. And I'll never forget, her glasses went and fell right off on the ground. And she said, I'm going to tell my dad on you. And so that was the end of that relationship. So some of us have had battles on the playground, even the playgrounds of life. But do you sense that you're on a playground? Do you feel like you're on a playground? You know, everything is just, you're just living life for the fun of it. Or do you have a sense that you're in a battle? That you're in a battle. Look at our text. Ephesians chapter 6, I'll begin reading in verse number 10. I'm not going to preach through all of these, but I'm going to read down through verse number 17. Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 10. Paul says, finally, my brethren. And he liked that word, finally. It shows up in a lot of his epistles, several of them. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And he continues talking about praying and the need to pray. So let's pray now, and we'll ask God to give us understanding of this passage, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your spirit that lives within us. Father, we come to you today and we are honest with you about who we are and where we're at in life. Lord, we thank you for your salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. We, we readily confess, Lord, that without Christ we, we would have no hope of salvation. But Lord, we need your help in this life. And Father, I pray that you would enlighten our understanding this morning. Father, I pray for some who are being overwhelmed and overcome in the battle. I pray for others of us who haven't been able to identify the enemy that we face. And Lord, maybe others of us who are becoming weary in the battle and discouraged. So Lord, give us clarity this morning. And Father, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit and your word, will strengthen us, and Father, that we will stand, and that we will do all to stand in this day. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Now, if you've truly received the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, for those of us who have received Christ, heaven is our home, right? Uh, We don't need to be afraid of death. Uh, Death does not have victory over us. And when we leave this life, we immediately are present with the Lord. We're no longer in bondage to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. But we have been made alive with Christ, and heaven is our home. But if you're a Christian, and, I do, and I'm using that term specifically. I'm not saying the word believer. I'm saying if you're a Christian, and the word Christian means a Christ follower, If you're truly following Christ, then you're in a battle. It's possible to be a believer, to be born again, to have quenched the Spirit and grieved Him, and to be kind of coasting along through life according to the world in which we live. It's possible to do that. It's possible to just say no to the Spirit and kind of go with the flesh. Consequences come with that. Regrets will come with that. Shame comes with that. And there's no telling exactly when all of those things will take place in this life. But they will happen eventually. But for a while, it's possible for a child of God to sow to the flesh. And for a season, sin even can be pleasurable. But if you're a Christian, if you're truly a Christ follower, then you're in a battle and you know it. If you're truly saying no to the flesh and you're truly saying yes to the Spirit of God, then you are in a battle. And we need to understand that we're in a battle, and we need to understand how that God wants us to fight the battle. The Christian life is not a playground. It's not a playground. Hey, do you want to go swing? No? You want to play hopscotch? Okay, let's play basketball. Let's do this. Let's go run. Let's go play soccer. what What a great... The Christian life is not a playground, okay? It's a battleground. It's a battlefield. And frankly, we face enemies that outside of Christ are much more powerful than us. On several occasions in the Bible, God uses military terms to help us understand the Christian life. I want you to leave Ephesians for a few moments, and I want you to turn back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read several verses, and I want you to, I want you to see the, the language that is found in these verses because it will help us understand what I believe Ephesians chapter 6 is teaching us this morning, and that is that we are in a battle. We are in the battle. 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. Look with me at verse number 4. Verse 4. And, and this is not uncommon. Uh, for God to use this language in the Bible. It says in verse 10, for the wep- or verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now he's talking about the uh, privilege of overcoming strongholds or sin in our lives, but he uses the term in verse 4, the beginning part, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. He's talking about weapons. He's talking about warfare. He's talking to people who had been overcome with the flesh, but who through Christ could be victorious over the flesh. And as God is talking to them, he says, you have weapons and you are in a fight. You're at war. 
Look over, if you would, to Timothy. Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. In your Bibles, please look there. I want you to see, we'll look at a couple passages in Timothy before getting back to Ephesians. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 12. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. Look at verse 12. He says, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Fight the good fight of faith. Fight. Are, do, you, do you have any sense that you're in a battle? Look over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, just a page over in your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll read beginning in verse number 3, and I'll read down through verse 4. He says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Would you consider a soldier to be a good soldier who runs away from the battle? Are any battles easy? I suppose some might be easier than others. Of course, in the context or the time frame when this would have been penned down, there were no drone strikes in those days. It would have been hand-to-hand combat primarily, where you probably were able to look into the whites of the eyes of your enemy and maybe feel his breath upon your face. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Look down to verse number 7. Consider what I say, and the Lord give thee understanding in all things. Look, look, if you would, uh, down to chapter 4 in verse 7. Chapter 4 in verse 7. Listen how what Paul states here in verse 7 of chapter 4. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. He says, I have fought a good fight. You can go back to Ephesians in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6. Are you in the battle? How many of you have ever played sports or athletics of any kind? You're ever on any kind of a team at all, of any kind? Okay, of those of you who are on a team like that, um, how many of you like to be on the sidelines, on the bench? One, all right? Depending on where you were, right? Depending how badly they were beating you, maybe that would have been the safest place to be. I don't know. Uh, When it comes to a game like that, most of us want to be in the game. We want want that position. We want that opportunity. Um, War is different than a game. War is not a game. Are, Are you in the battle? Are you in the fight? Do you know what the battle is for? Do you know what the fight is for? As Christians, the Bible tells us that we face three enemies. The world, we're not talking about people when I say the world. I'll define it in a moment. But the world is our enemy, or worldliness. Our flesh is an enemy. And the devil is an enemy. Look, at, look back to Ephesians, and look back to chapter 2 and verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, and you hath he quickened, he's made you alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. And that's 
there is a good Bible definition of the world right there. The course of this world, the way that society operates, the direction that they're going is, is our society, is the world in which we live. Uh, do they fear God? Do they love God? Do they love God's word? Do they love truth? Um, and the answer would be no. And then he says, according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, speaking of the devil, among whom also we all had our conversation, the way we used to live our lives in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, and, the, and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And so in those first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul identified for the church at Ephesus, you have three enemies. You have the world in which you're living and the system of the world in which you live. You have your own godless, wicked flesh, and I talk to you often about that. And then you have the devil. I don't know if I ever tried it, Mom and Dad, when I was little growing up. But I, don't, I don't know if I ever tried to blame the devil for things that I had done, like the devil made me do it. I don't remember if I ever did that or not. Um, uh, one of my children has done that. I think his words were, uh, the devil was close by, and he told me to hit the golf ball right through the window. And I said, I don't think that was the devil, but that was a bad idea, and thank you for not listening. Sometimes we want to blame the devil for everything. But we do face three enemies. The world is the system around us that is opposed to God. The world is set up to cater to the lust of our flesh the lust of our eyes, the pride of life. The world is society apart from God. The world is society apart from God. Uh, we have our flesh. It is also an enemy of ours. It's the old nature that we inherited from Adam, from our father and his father before him and his father before him. Our flesh is opposed to God and without the Holy Spirit's uh, victory over the flesh, our flesh cannot please God. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead, he overcame the world and he overcame the flesh. And then there's the enemy of our text, and that is the devil. And look at verse 11 of, of Ephesians chapter 6. Look at verse 11 and 12. Paul gives this admonition and instruction. He says, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And I ask you again, are you in a battle? Do you sense that you're in a battle? Are you, are you, are you warring? Are you fighting? Do you sense the pull of the world around you? Do you sense that? Do you sense the lust of your flesh pulling you away from God uh, in a direction in rebellion against the leading of the Holy Spirit of God in your life? Do you sense that? And then the question would be, are you fighting that? Or are you giving in to it? Do you find yourself regularly conflicted between your wicked flesh and the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ who lives within you. Because they're at war with one another. Do you understand who the enemy is? Because as Christians, 
We don't fight for victory. And I'll say that again. We don't fight for victory. We fight from the position of victory. Did you hear me on that? You say, well, I am fighting for victory. No, no. The victory's already won. The battle is won. Jesus Christ has won the battle. We are not fighting for victory because Christ won the victory. We are fighting from the position of victory. But yet we have a responsibility to fight from that position, to hold the ground that Christ has given us. We have that responsibility, and we'll be accountable, and we are accountable to God for what we do with the victory that Christ has given to us and entrusted into our care. Romans chapter 8 and verse 37, the latter part says, We are more than conquerors through him, through Christ who loved us. So as we're filled with the Spirit of Christ, we are able to enjoy the victory of Christ. Only as you say yes, only as I say yes to the Spirit of Christ, who is the Holy Spirit, are we able to enjoy the victory that Jesus Christ secured for us. As long as I'm going to say no to the Spirit of Christ, no to his leading, no to his word, then I, yea, even a child of God, will not enjoy the victory that Christ has secured for me. And it came at a great price, didn't it? He died on the cross for our sins. He took the sins of the whole world upon his body. He suffered. He suffered for you and for me. So as this letter comes to a close, Paul wants the Ephesian church to have an understanding of some matters about their enemy. And if they'll have an understanding about some matters about their enemy, these, these truths will protect the church at Ephesus. They'll protect you and me, and they'll lead us to joyful lives and victorious lives. You know, in the military, intelligence, in, in the military, intelligence is everything. Um, Knowing, what the en- knowing who the enemy is, knowing where they are, knowing what their motives are, what's their agenda, what are they trying to do? Because if I can know what they're trying to do, I can block them here, I can defeat them here, I can destroy them there, and it will set me up for victory. Well, the same is true, I think, for us in our Christian lives. And so we have some intelligence, and I don't mean that, Um, in pun, but we have some intelligence here on our enemy that God has given us in his word. He gives us some information about how the devil operates, what he's looking to accomplish, what you and I have to be on guard against, and how we can be victorious over him. And God wants us to understand these truths. I'm going to give you three truths this morning about our enemy. Number one, the leader of our enemy is the devil. Our enemy has a leader. Our opponent has a leader, and he is the devil. Look again at verse 11. He says, Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles there has the idea of cunning or craftiness. It actually is the Greek word methodeia. methodeia. We get our English word method from it, that Greek word. Uh, The method, the devil has a method. He has a plan. And and he is the leader of our enemy. The devil has many different names in the Bible. The The word devil means accuser. And the Bible tells us that the devil accuses God's people day and night 
before the throne of God. Did you know that? Revelation talks about that. How, God, how, how the devil approaches God day and night, accusing you and me. I wonder what his accusations are like. Another name for the devil is Satan. It means adversary. Satan means adversary because the devil is the enemy of God. Satan is called the tempter in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 3. He is called a murderer and a liar uh, later on in John and in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. The devil is compared to a lion. He says, be sober to believers. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. I think of you often. I pray for you often. You, I would ask that you would pray for me often. You see, as we're going to see in a few moments, we, we don't wrestle the opposition is not flesh and blood. Do you know that the opposition is not people? I think we need to be reminded of that coming off of what took place over the past few, week, the past few weeks in the wake of, of uh, Judge Kavanaugh. The enemy is not people. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The devil is the leader of our enemy, or our enemy. He is also compared to a serpent in Genesis chapter 3, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and we may read this later, he is called an angel of light. The devil is called an angel of light. Now, how are you supposed to identify him? If he's going to look so wonderful, he doesn't, I don't think, have horns and a pointy tail and I don't think he's red. I don't think he reveals himself to God's people as being evil at all. But I think he reveals himself as being good. Maybe even pretending to be righteous. Maybe even pretending to be godly and to be pious. He is called an angel of light. The devil is called, quote, the God of this world in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. And, and one might ask the question, well, where did Satan come from? Well, he is a created being. He is a spirit creature that is continually opposing God and is trying to defeat the work of God. And most students of the Bible believe that before Satan rebelled against God, he was known as Lucifer, son of the morning. And I'm going to read to you from Isaiah. You can turn there if you'd like. Isaiah chapter 14. And I'm going to read a few verses from Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse number 12. And listen to these verses about the devil. He says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation on the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, the Bible says, to the sides of the pit. You know that Lucifer, Lucifer was a created being. The Bible seems to indicate that he was very musical. And, um, and he's known and identified as an angel of light. He's an accuser. He's the enemy of God. He's a deceiver. 
He's deceptive. What is it about deception that we don't seem to understand? Deception has the idea of someone's being led to believe one thing while actually something else is happening. So if you're going to look, and if I'm going to look and say, how would our enemy enemy be trying to influence my thinking in this decision of my life? We ought not necessarily be looking just for something wicked, though he is wicked. But he's going to be operating in our lives through his demons and through this world in which we live and the society that is against the world, and even using our own godless, wicked flesh to try to lead us to believe one thing, while actually he has something else in mind for us. Lucifer, according to Isaiah 14, was cast down because of his pride and his desire to occupy God's throne. And and I have to say, there are many things about the devil that we don't know, uh, but there are some things that we do know. We do know who he is, we do know what he is doing, and we do know where he is going. And the Bible makes all of those things very clear. He is not an eternal being either, by the way. He had a point of beginning. He is not eternal. He is not all-knowing like God. He doesn't know everything. By the way, he doesn't know what you don't, what you don't communicate and make known. He doesn't know. He doesn't know your thoughts. And he's not all-powerful either. He can't be everywhere at once. He's not all-knowing, he's not all-powerful, and he can't be everywhere at once. So how does Satan accomplish so much in the world and so many different parts of the world so easily? And the answer is he has some help. And that brings me to my second thought, and that's found in verse 12. Not only is the leader of our enemy the devil, but secondly, the army of our enemy is comprised of rebellious angels. He has a whole army of angels, and we often call them demons. Now, the Bible seems to indicate that the angels of heaven are innumerable. The Bible also seems to indicate to us that one-third of all of the angels of heaven followed Satan in rebellion against God. So that would tell me, if the angels of heaven are innumerable, how many are the one-third that left heaven to follow Satan? Is it a small number? I don't think so. I think it's a huge number. And and my point of saying that is this, the army of our enemy is comprised of rebellious angels. Satan is not alone, and he has a powerful army. Paul called them in verse 12, look there, he says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against, and here's how he identifies the evil, our enemy, principalities against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And this is how Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, identifies the army of rebellious angels of which Satan is the leader. He calls them principalities, he calls them powers, he calls them rulers, and he calls them spiritual wickedness in high places. And what's being described to us is a literal demonic force of creatures that have rebelled against God and are completely committed to to following the will and carrying out the will of Satan. In Revelation chapter 12, the Apostle John talked about a third of the angels of heaven following Satan when he rebelled against God. The book of Daniel tells us that the demonic army of Satan struggles 
against God's angels for the control of the affairs of nations on earth. God wants us to understand that while we cannot see it, a spiritual battle is raging around us. And and, and Paul seems to want the people of Ephesus to know, and certainly the Spirit of God wants us to know, that whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, we are at war. And I look out across the congregation this morning, and there are mothers here. Your children are at war. No one likes war. No one wants their children to go off to war. You're at war. I'm at war. And and we are players in the battle. And the way we live our lives doesn't just affect us. The way I live my life doesn't just affect me. It doesn't just affect Cindy. It doesn't just affect my four children. It doesn't just affect you as as a congregation of believers. And the way you live your life doesn't just affect your spouse or your children or your parents or this local assembly, and then it doesn't go any further. We're no longer, we have no more influence than that. No, the way we live our lives actually, to a very real extent, is we're either throwing in, we're casting in on the side of God in the battle, or we're casting in on the side of Satan on the battle. You know, the things that we listen to do matter. Are the things that we listen to of God, or are they devilish? Um, The things that we watch are important. The things that we say in private are important. We're either casting in with God on his side of the battle... Or we're casting in with the evil one on his side of the battle. Are you fighting the good fight of faith? And that is, are you taking God at his word even when you don't feel like it? And even when friends around you aren't? And even when family around you aren't? And even when a society around us isn't? Are we fighting the good fight of faith, taking God at his word, because we really are choosing one side of the battle over the other? And whose side are we on? And of course, we would, always, we would all say, well, we're on God's side. Wouldn't we all say that? No one would say, well, I'm not on God's side. But is every one of us doing all that we can with what God has given us to stand? Look at verse number 13 and 14. He says, wherefore... Take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. And the inference there is if you don't take it on, you're not going to be able to stand. You're going to fall. And then he says, and having done all to stand. Now we're going to study the armor. We're not going to get into it this morning. But are you taking it on? And we're going to see from the language, from the verbiage of these words of God, That the taking on the armor of God is something that has to be done daily throughout the day. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a, well, I asked Jesus to save me, and so I'm good to go. No, you will fall in the battle. You will succumb in the battle. You will give in to temptation. You will give in to fleshly lust. You will follow worldliness, whether it's music or entertainment, or whatever it might be, you will, 
If you don't take what God has provided for you and put it on daily. Look at verse number 14. He continues, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. You see, one truth that I want us to clearly understand is that our battle isn't with people. And you see that at the beginning of verse number 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We're in a battle with an evil spiritual force. Too many times we look at a person or a group of people as the enemy. Sometimes that happens within a church. Can you believe her? Can you believe him? I can't believe them. You do understand they're not the enemy. Sometimes we view people as the enemy outside of church. Coworkers, employers, employees. Sometimes parents view children as the enemy. Sometimes children view parents as the enemy. Sometimes spouses view spouses as the enemy. And I'm, what I'm saying is, people aren't the enemy. There is a more powerful enemy at work. Stop looking at the person as the enemy. The person is not the enemy. Now, they can cast in with the enemy. And to that degree, I, 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 I will concede... But ultimately, the person is not the enemy. Satan is continually seeking to deceive people into following following him to rebel against God, to oppose God's work. During Paul's ministry in Ephesus, the gospel was greatly opposed. Now remember, Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians, but earlier in Paul's ministry, he had actually been in the city of Ephesus, and he had served there for three years going from house to house and teaching the people there the word of God. And the church was born and it grew. And Paul loved the church at Ephesus. On one occasion, of course, he was thrown out of Ephesus. He wasn't allowed to go back into Ephesus. And so he passed by. And some of the pastors out of, of, of Ephesus came out to Paul and they hug him and they kiss him and they cry. And they all cry as he says goodbye. And Paul warns them to watch for the flock of God and to take heed and to beware because wolves are going to come in upon the flock and going to cause great harm to the flock. And they weep as they say goodbye to the Apostle Paul. So Paul had a fervent love for the church at Ephesus. When he was first in Ephesus, as they were preaching the word of God, uh, a man by the name of Demetrius, he was a silversmith. And, and the silversmiths, the Bible tells us, and uh, outside of the Bible, history also tells us that uh, they would, uh, idolatry was a major industry in the city of Ephesus. The Temple of Diana, or Artemis, as some called it, was uh, a, a temple of worship and fornication and idolatry in the city of Ephesus. And, and so uh, they would sell idols of Diana, and they would make them out of silver, and they would sell them. And of course... Um, here comes uh, apostles and evangelists into the city of Ephesus. And what are they preaching? There's one Christ. There's one God. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe upon the name of the Lord and thou shalt be saved. And turn away from your idols. Well, what does that do to idol sales in Ephesus? Because God blessed his word. Many people were being saved. And many people were turning away from idols. And so what, what happened to the stock uh, in the uh, Demetrius idol sales shop, what happened to his stock? It went down. And he was upset. And the Bible actually says in the book of Acts that the city of Ephesus was in an uproar over it. I mean, this was a problem. 
And, and, and all of the idol uh, makers were getting together and they were going to the political leaders and they were saying, you need to make these people stop preaching that Jesus Christ is God and that there is only one God because they are destroying revenue and industry in the city of, of Ephesus. And so they were, they were severely punished. And ultimately, Paul was made to leave the city of Ephesus. Um, but in all of that, my point is this, Demetrius wasn't the enemy. Demetrius needed to be saved, but ultimately, Demetrius wasn't the enemy. And I want to tell you something this morning. Uh, you and I ought not look at certain political parties and say, those are the enemy. That person's the enemy. Now, was Demetrius working for the enemy of God? Yes or no? Yes. Did God send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so Demetrius could be saved? Yes or no? It's not right for you and for me to declare war against people in our hearts and our minds, our fellow countrymen, or our fellow church members, or our family members. Now, we ought to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but we need to understand who the enemy is. We have to understand who the enemy is. Let's not waste our energy being upset and angry against people when the enemy is Satan and his demonic army. And by the way, the only way to defeat Satan and his demonic army is to be filled with the Spirit and to put on the armor of God. Look, look with me at verses 10, uh, uh, 10 again. And, and I want to notice one last truth, and that is this. Our enemy has means, or he has methods. So number one, we saw the leader of our enemy is the devil. Number two, the army of our enemy is comprised of rebellious angels. And thirdly and finally, our enemy has means. Look, look at verse number 10. He says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. He has means. I notice he's powerful. He's powerful and his army is powerful. The instruction in verse number 10 um, and the encouragement that Paul gave to the Ephesian church clearly communicates that our enemy is very powerful. Look again at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. What is Paul saying? He's saying if you're going to defeat the enemy, you're going to need the power of God. Because without him, you're not going to defeat the enemy. I think some of us have the attitude, you know, God saved me from death and hell. I'm on my way to heaven someday. I'm going to live my life however I jolly well please on this earth. And you know what? Someday I'll get to heaven and it'll be all fine. Streets of gold and all that stuff. And it's just going to be all fine and dandy. But on this earth, you know what? I can pretty much do whatever I want. I don't have to say yes to the Spirit of God. I don't have to obey the Word of God. And it's just going to be okay. And that's not what the Bible communicates. And what he's clearly saying in verse 10 is, the enemy that you're facing is so very, very strong, if you do not have the power of God, you will be overcome. It's not that the devil can take away your salvation. It's not necessarily that the devil can hurt your physical body, although he did to Job, because God led him. He's powerful. So powerful that we need the power of God to stand against the strength of the devil. Look again at verse 10. He says, be strong. And the idea is, 
habitually or continual action. Be strong. You can't stop being strong. Do you ever get tired of being strong? Do you? Do you? Come on now. Yeah. Do you ever you say, you know, I just, I just need to let down. I just need to take, a, I just need to take some time off. Bible tells us to take a day off every week and rest. But here he says you can't take a day off in the battle. I worked for a fellow one time, and he used to talk to us about that. He'd say, okay, you're all going on vacation. I'm going to see you in a couple weeks. He said, uh, it's a change of pace, but you still need to be on guard. And he would talk to us. He said there have been many of the men who fall in in the two weeks while they were away, because they got out of their, their routines of disciplines, and they fell. And we, live in a, we live in a day where we like our time off, and we do. And I'm not saying time off is a bad thing, but when it comes to your spiritual life, you cannot take a day off. Be strong every day. And then notice he says this, in the Lord. And the point is this, I can't be strong enough in and of myself to overcome the devil. I'm not going to have it. I don't have what it takes to do that. I don't have what it takes to overcome the devil. And he's not just saying, you know what? You man up and you be strong. You be tough. You, you dig deep. You, you look within yourself and you find what you got and you give it to the devil. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you need to be strong every day in the Lord. And what he's really saying in that passage is you need to be submitting to the authority and the power of God every day. You need to be depending upon the strength of God every day, in every situation, in every relationship, in every thought. No child of God should live in fear of the devil. I don't want you to leave here this morning fearing him. We fear God. We don't fear the devil And I don't want us to leave here fearing the devil, but neither should we underestimate him. Do you remember what God allowed Satan to do to Job? You remember that? Satan was able to hurt friendships. The friendships of Job, he was able to hurt his marriage. He was able to destroy his property. He was able to take the lives of all of his children. He was was allowed to cause tremendous personal physical suffering to Job. That's how powerful he is. Jesus called Satan a thief who comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. Now that's what Jesus called him, a thief who comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Do you remember how Satan sifted the apostle Peter? In Luke chapter 22, the night before Jesus was betrayed, they've partaken of the Lord's Supper They're about to leave the upper room and go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was going to be betrayed. And the disciples began to talk amongst themselves who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And listen to what Jesus said to Peter. He said, Simon, Simon, speaking to Peter, he said, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. You remember later that night, Peter would curse Jesus' name 
And he would deny Jesus Christ that he ever knew him three times. And if that can happen to the Apostle Peter, that can happen to you and me. And so he says, be strong, habitually submit yourself to the power of God. And when you do, the Holy Spirit of God will make available to you the necessary power to overcome the evil one. If you do not habitually submit yourself to the power of the Spirit of God, you will not have the strength you need in and of yourself. You do not have enough knowledge. You will not have enough Bible verses memorized. You will not have enough sermons that you've heard to overcome the evil one. And every single one of us need to be disciplined in this area of our lives. As I, as I pondered this passage this week, I, I just found myself thinking and I wondered to myself, I wonder how many pastors, I wonder how many of God's people have not made these truths a part of their lives. I wonder how many good people, born-again believers, have tried to carry out the will of God and to stand for truth and to stand against the wiles of the devil, but have fallen and have succumbed to his temptations because they didn't know how or they weren't disciplined in doing so. You see, the spirit-filled soldier will not depend upon his flesh, but he will receive supernatural power as he says yes to the Holy Spirit of God. Repeatedly, whenever I talk to a young believer, and I ought to maybe say it more often to older believers, I ought to be reminding us every week, say yes to the Spirit of God. When he, when he convicts you, say yes to him. Where he leads you, say yes to him. What he leads you to do, say yes to him. And you may say, I can't do that now. Say yes to him. Well, I don't know if I should have to do that. Say yes to him. But I've been doing this my whole life and living my whole life this way. Say yes to him. There's, there's more at stake. Because to say no to him is to rob yourself of the power of God that is the only means that you have for overcoming the temptation of Satan in your life. In verse 11, I notice the enemy's means, not only is he powerful, but he's also cunning. That we might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles, we get our English word method from that Greek word. It means cunning, crafty arts to lie in wait. See, if you're going to be in victorious over the enemy, you can't be ignorant of his devices. 2 Corinthians 2.11 tells us. And if we're going to stand, we're going to need to start putting on the whole armor of God, which means that the way Paul, Paul says that to, to put on the whole armor of God, I can't say it, I, only I can give it justice how he writes it. And the idea is that there's such urgency. Like if you don't do this, if you don't do this, you're going to be overcome. Your marriage is going to be overcome. Your children are going to be overcome. If you do not understand and put on the armor of God, the full armor of God, you are not going to make it. Heaven is your home. You have no fear of that. You're not going to hell. Heaven is your home. But you will not live a life that is pleasing and glorifying to God. You will sow to the flesh, and you will of the flesh reap corruption. You must put on the whole armor of God. That's the idea of this statement. 
And really, he's encouraging the entire Ephesian church to start putting on the whole armor of God. You know, some people are cunning. Some people are crafty. Uh, Some people work at deceiving other people, but behind them all is the devil. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says, And no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Satan tries intentionally to blind men's minds to the truth of God's word. He wants to bore you to death. He wants truth to be boring. And he wants the frivolous things of this life to be exciting. The armor of God enables us to stand. Do you, do you see that? Because without it, there is no opportunity to stand. But the, the armor of God enables us to stand, to stand against the methods of the devil. It is impossible for any person to stand with the Lord against the methods of Satan without being filled with the Spirit. And I say that again, without saying yes to the Spirit of God and without being in obedience to the Word of God. There's one last, one last means that I notice in this passage. He's powerful, he's cunning, and also he's close. He's close. Look at verse 12, the beginning part. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We don't wrestle. The fight isn't against people. It's against the enemy. It's against Satan and his demonic force. And do you see the verbiage in the beginning of verse 12? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Wrestling is hand to hand. I hate wrestling. I don't like wrestling. There are too many, I have too many, my arms are too long, they can be used against me. It's just bad. I'm not compact enough. It's just, Mr. Bohalski, you're a good wrestler. Or used to be anyway, right? He was a good wrestler. He probably, I don't want to wrestle you now. Wrestling is close, it's hand to hand. You can smell your opponent. You probably can taste him from time to time. See why I don't like it? It's close. And what God tells us is the enemy is close. And it's also an individual thing. He's talking to the church at Ephesus and he really is saying, every one of you, every one of you need to put on the whole armor of God. You need to do it every day. You need to rely on the power of God every day and you say yes to the Spirit of God every day, every one of you. Because if you don't, you're going to be overwhelmed. You're going to give in. You're going to compromise somewhere along the line. You're going to end up doing something you regret the whole rest of your life. You're going to end up, you're going to end up sowing to the flesh and it's going to cost you eternal reward. The enemy's close. One-on-one. You see, you're not a spectator. I appreciate many of you will will talk to me and say, Pastor Ferguson, I pray for you. I pray that God will protect you. I pray that God will give you wisdom, and I love you for it. I I thank you for that. Please don't stop. I've had people talk to me before about, you know, Pastor Ferguson, you you know, you're in the battle. You're on the front lines. And sometimes the inference is, Pastor Ferguson, you're on the front lines, but I'm not. I want you to know that's not right thinking. You're on the front lines. Every one of you are on the front lines. Some of us have the attitude of, you know what, I'm just kind of sitting back and, 
And I'm just not jumping all the way in, you know. You're in the battle. You are in the battle. Whether you like it or not. Now next week, or it won't be next week, the week after we'll look at the armor of God. And I'd encourage you to bring something to write with, take some notes, ask God, Lord, help me to understand what it is to take on the full armor of God. Lord, because I want to stand in the evil day, and I want to do everything I can to stand for your glory and my good. Let's all stand to our feet, and uh, let's take our hymnals, if you would, and we'll sing a hymn, hymn number 380, hymn number 380. You know, as we're getting our hymnals out, we're getting ready to go, and we'll go eat lunch, go home, go out to eat somewhere, whatever. Um, Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Ferguson, I've never received Christ as my personal Savior. And I want you to know this morning you can do that. And I encourage you to do that. Call out the Lord between you and him and, and ask him. Confess your sinfulness to him and ask him to save you from your sin. And he will. He will. And he'll give you his Holy Spirit to live within you, to go with you wherever you go, to encourage you, to convict you, to lead you, to guide you, to teach you. And he'll go with you. But you know, as we leave this place, we don't go alone. I want you to remember that. It's not you against the devil. It's Christ in you that will overcome the devil every single time. You'll feel the, you'll feel the, stressor, the, the stressor, the pressure and the stress. That's one word. See, I'm trying to cut down on time. You'll, you'll feel it. You'll feel it. Okay? You'll feel it, and some of you do. And if you do feel it, I want to encourage you as your pastor Don't you dare give up, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So let's sing. We'll sing all three verses, and then we'll be dismissed.